Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Patricia, back again and excited for this first episode of the third season entitled A Genesis. I'm Melissa, another one of your hosts today, usually found on the other side of the table as an author of Life Out Loud. And I'm Selena. Yes, for the beginning of our third season, we're bringing you an episode centered around beginnings. In this episode, three authors look at the commencements of integral parts of their lives, telling the stories of the impact these events have had on their lives. Just like life, not all beginnings are sweet. Right off the bat, we want to disclose a trigger warning for sexual assault in the first story. The time markers for the beginning of the story and interview and the end where their next story starts will be in the description of this episode. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, there are resources available to you, many of which can be anonymous. National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at 800-799-7233 and 800-942-6908 for Spanish speakers. This is a 24-7 hotline that provides crisis intervention in both English and Spanish and referrals to local services and shelters for victims of partner or spousal abuse. You can also contact the Stand Against Domestic Violence Crisis Hotline at 888-215-5555. Let's get into it. Our first story is from Yvette Diaz. Yvette is a banker by day and a student by night at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, acquiring a bachelor's degree in English. Although those two roles tie up the majority of her time, nothing takes more than her role of mother to her 13-year-old and new infant. Amidst all of this, her soul craves writing, and this was reignited with her spring 2016 creative nonfiction course with Professor Madrazo. She hopes her rawness and vulnerability in her writing makes even the smallest connection in the world. Thank you, Selena. Let's take a listen to Yvette's piece entitled Kitchen Table. I am sitting at the kitchen table. His voice is looming over me. Again. He's talking, but I'm not listening. My mind is elsewhere, trying to escape. <sighs> An apartment full of people, and I feel completely alone. My father's in my parents' bedroom, probably watching cops. I know this from his frequent shrills and exclamations when someone is caught. Stupid motherfucker! Comes out every few minutes. My mother is sitting on the couch in our living room, watching her beloved novella, Maria La del Barrio. My little sister Wanda and my grandmother are in our other bedroom. Grandma probably already asleep for the evening and Wanda engrossed with the Powerpuff Girls. Then there's Precious, licking her paws as she sits on the love seat in the den, adjacent to the kitchen. The apartment is not massive, but it's cozy. Its walls certainly aren't thick enough to conceal sounds. I should know. I hear my parents' arguments all the time. Jurati, sitting next to me, is going on and on about how I am too friendly with other guys. What does he not have a complaint about? Today, the problem is that I was too friendly with my coworker when he appeared at my job, unannounced, trying to make his male presence known. Hello, I am friendly with the world, men and women alike. I enjoy people, I enjoy interactions, most of them anyway. I enjoy most things, most people, most everything, but not this. Not what this has turned into, what he has turned into. Jwadi's voice continues with that dry sting of anger. My gaze settles on my perfectly manicured nails in that glossy black shade. I trace my left pointer finger over my name ring that sits on my middle finger. 
My name, Yvette, written beautifully in cursive. I trace its letters. They're solid and definite, not soft, not indecisive. He can always pick up on my concrete discomfort in his presence. My sadness makes him mad, so I attempt to mask my thoughts. Betraying me, they read like a teleprompter on my forehead. He's right. I'm not happy. I do not like you. I wish I could say. Your insecure voice has begun to overpower my headspace. Usually when that happens, I just say, I love you. Sometimes, I think I say it because if I don't, I'm afraid of what might happen next. Jawadi starts to complain about sex. If I am not interested in having sex, it seems the world will end. Is this what it always boils down to? Sex? I wish he would just be quiet so my family doesn't hear. I've learned how to remain quiet to avoid further arguments. It's a skill I have begun to master. I give Jawadi a look that reads, Lower your voice, to attempt to silence him. But really, I want to scream and yell and confirm his worst fears. I don't like you. I don't like you, Jawadi. I don't like how rude you are. I especially don't like how you belittle me and try to make me feel like I'm not a good person. You're broken inside, and because of that, you try to constantly break me too. I'm tired of being called out of my name just because you're not happy with yourself. I didn't create you. I did not make you who you are. And most importantly, I know I cannot fix you. But I don't. I don't scream or yell or say any of these things. I stare at my hands, at my nails, at the top of the kitchen table, at my name ring, at my name, Yvette. Anywhere but in his eyes. You know, he didn't start off that way. He was kind sometimes, even funny. And I convinced myself that my sister Leslie was right. I should give him a chance. I didn't mind that he was overweight. I thought he was sweet. But then things changed rapidly, back and forth at first, like lights at an intersection. Soon, though, the sweet and funny seemed to all but disappear. He was abrasive. He was bold. He was no longer soft or unsure. His eyes glimmered when he felt my fear mounting. That look was more startling than his words, actually. He liked my fear. It made him feel important, I think. Jwadi pulls my face closer to his, so my parents can hear him. Yvette, I want to right now. Is he nuts? Everyone is in my house. Right now? Right here? In the kitchen? I don't want to sleep with him ever, but no less when my whole family is here. Why can't he just leave me alone? He squeezes my left arm with just the right amount of pressure that ignites a sharp pain to which I have grown familiar. I don't want to be here. Yvette, come on, I'm not playing, I'm horny. The real Yvette in me? The one I was when I got this ring wants to tell you to fuck off and kick you out of my home. I say deep in my mind, but not with my voice. His hands are around my neck now. Hurry up, lay down. And so I do, on the floor, under the kitchen table, praying none of my family comes into the kitchen. I will get this over with, I think, quickly. Maybe he'll leave the house and I can contact Sprint and change my phone number. Maybe this can really be the last time. I can't do this anymore. I'll finally tell my parents. Tell them everything. Tell them how you said I can't leave. That time on my 16th birthday, the day you told me, no one's going to love you like me. No one will want to love you. Damn. I don't want to have sex. I don't want to have sex with you. Just one more time. Last time. Your skin reminds me of dirt. Your kisses are wet and desperate. The cold floor is rubbing against my back. The underside of the table looms over me. I'm ashamed of what I have become in allowing you a place in my world, my life, my body. 
I am no longer strong. I am not powerful. I am not Yvette. Tears form around my eyes, but that doesn't stop you. It never does. I retreat inward. My eyes fixate on my right hand that is placed on the floor. My name ring, Yvette, staring at me in shock, like I've betrayed it. It glimmers back at me, reminding me that I am not me, not her, not that name. I am not Yvette. He's got to be close to finishing. Joadi, don't, I warn. Get out. Don't come in me. But I know my words don't merit much. They never do. Fuck. I am standing in the bathroom, my right hand feeling heavy, as it holds a test that will shape the rest of my life. The life that will be passed on to another. The one I will name Yvette. Like me. Only, she will be better. A better Yvette than me. She will be beautiful and firm and solid, like the one on my ring. She will not stand for the things I've stood for. I will make sure of it. EPT, I'm pregnant, you say, huh? I am pregnant. And now, now things must change. Wow. Thank you for that, Evie. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, thank really. <laughs> I'm just like I'm just like thinking about it. I'm just like very deep in thought about it because I remember reading this the first time and I was so taken aback. Yeah, and I was just like so like just like feeling it to the to the nines. Um, to hear the story that had this ending that was just like so so like unexpected. Right. Yeah. Like this new beginning out of this like horrible event. Um. Thank you for that. Thank you for writing that so well and like sharing it with us. Definitely not an easy thing to do, mm-hmm. but um, uh, for for that whole situation, like I had shared with um, Madrazo prior to me actually writing it, the only person or the only two people in my life that knew were my best friend and my existing partner. It's not mm-hmm. something I discussed with anyone. Mm-hmm. So I let everyone uh, make their own assumptions as to how she came into this world. Uh, I was obviously uh, very young, 16 going on 17. And for anyone that obviously didn't know anything that was going on, they just assumed, well, she was having sex and having fun and it was a good time. And I let people for a very, very long time make that assumption. And I think in me deciding to write this was like dispelling that. But now I'm completely countering it because I'm putting it on paper and I'm putting it out there that this is what happened. Um, and then also too, remember this was only supposed to be for class mm-hmm. and yet here we are now. Yes. Yeah. Here so. we are. Yeah. It's definitely like eye opening for like, cause mm-hmm. like you can't assume certain things about people just right. because they're in different mm-hmm. situations. Absolutely. It's really, it's a very powerful mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading it for the first, like I remember reading it in class. It was just mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was interesting. I think experience for all of us. I think it was very therapeutic too for me, but I even think for people in the room too, because, Absolutely. um, it's not something that we talk about yeah. a lot. And even myself, I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it. I don't even think I recognized exactly what was happening to me or what had happened to me. And um, certain thoughts that, uh, like certain questions I had from like, let's say my best friend. And she looked at me and she's like, you know, you never thought about having an abortion? Mm-hmm. And it's weird because it never came into my mind. Mm-hmm. Never came into my mind. I found out and I instantly went from oh I want to go to a college in California 
to, okay, well, now I have to figure out, I have to stay in New York and I have to figure out where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do and me trying to figure out the rest of my life. And that thought never came into mind. Like, maybe I should go down this avenue. And I didn't know how I was going to feel with the baby as well. You know, it could have been she was here, like, baby's born, and I have, like, this detachment on account of what I experienced. Mm -hmm. But I didn't. And I always say to myself, too, that um, there's a reason. There's a reason why maybe the way that she came about wasn't the best, but there's a reason why God chose me at that time to become a mother that early on Mm -hmm. in life because I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be the person that I am today if it wasn't for her, which is, I don't want to get emotional right now. No, it's special. It speaks a lot about this, I don't know, this beautiful thing. Like, that's your daughter. Yeah. Who, like, not even the fact that that's her origin. It's her, or, like, something that happened and i'm not sure if you mentioned the piece but had it happened like before that was the the first time technically that was the first time that it was actual like instance of it being forced Mm -hmm. i mean prior to that it was like pushy maybe sometimes or whatever which even in that like that's not okay Mm -hmm. but the level that it went to that was the first time Mm -hmm. and then after that is when it led into the physical abuse so the buildup of things is something that is it needs to be noted in terms of like domestic violence because mm-hmm. people think it's okay if it's like well maybe they speak ill to me sometimes you know maybe they call me out of my name and it's not that big of a deal but it is a big deal because it begins to escalate very easily and nobody pays mind to it and they brush it off mm-hmm. part of our problem too is um that like when you get an argument with someone right and it's you say something incredibly mean and, you know, you brush it off, which sometimes it happens, right? Like no one's going to be perfect, but we need to be mindful of what we're saying and how we're saying. Yeah. Um, just because before you know it, it could go from you just being like, oh, shut up to, oh, shut the fuck up mm-hmm. to, oh, shut the fuck up, bitch. How did we get there so fast? You know? Yeah. Um, and it's from letting go of the little stuff a lot of the time. Right. And not discussing the little stuff. Right. And... Yeah, And we edited that piece. I don't know if you remember. So initially, part of what um, I had talked about, I think we nixed it completely, where I was discussing my 16th birthday and how he was there and he made like the day like the worst day ever. Mm. Everybody was at my house, like my family, and everyone singing happy birthday. And he was dead silent, mm. just standing there. And I remember like thinking like, why are you even here? Yeah. Um, it started building up like early on from that verbal, him kind of being too intrusive. And then the commentary too, why are you dressing this way? And where are you going? And why are you hanging out with all of these people? And think about it. This, you hear about situations like this in like adult relationships, but teen abuse, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Teen domestic violence happens a lot too. So I was 15 going on 16. Why should you be concerned with who I'm hanging out with? Mm -hmm. Not to say in any, you know, aspect of a relationship. Obviously, as you get older, if you're in a mature, loving relationship, that's something different. But I think when you're that age, that shouldn't be your concern or the no. basis of a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, But to answer your question, that was the first time that it was to that level. And mm-hmm. then as time progressed um, throughout the pregnancy, mm-hmm. that's when the, f- the first time he ever um, laid his hands on me was when I was three months pregnant with Mimi. Yeah. 
and um it just continued on from that it just kept going where it it went from it happening maybe sometimes to it happening every day every day and um him you know and an abuser it, it's sad to kind of say but they're very smart um wherever he would put his hands on me would be places that you cannot see so if i'm fully dressed you can't see whatever bruises i have underneath right because i'm doing it in places that you can't see and um yeah, it, it, it happened for the entire pregnancy. And this is why when you're mentioning like, oh, this is your child. For it to be that she was born and nothing, nothing was wrong with her. Mm-hmm. I, there's, that, there's nothing short of a miracle, I guess, when it comes to that. That to me is like a miracle yeah. in itself. Because the level of stress and um, abuse that I endured and even like straight to my belly as well, you know. How how would you imagine that a child's gonna come out and be perfectly fine? And she did. She was mm-hmm. perfectly, perfectly fine. She was just like so destined to be this good thing in your she life. She was meant to be yeah. here. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I. This is why I say I don't know why all these other thoughts never came into my head. But sh- there was a reason why she needed to come to the world when she did, and there was a reason why I'm her mom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's so true. Oh, Stop, Karen, because then you're gonna make me start. Okay. That's I think we both that. have mascara on too. So. I know. Oh my god. Okay. Oh my god. Well, that was really beautiful. <laughs> I was like crying. But okay, so at the very beginning of this piece, you talk about everyone else is doing. You talk about how your father is watching cops. You talk about how your grandmother is in the bedroom, what your dog is doing. And that's how the night starts with the usual, with the comfortable, of course, before the night morphs into something really ugly in that kitchen. Um, It reminds me of what you say about your then partner and eventual abuser about how he didn't start like this. He started out being understanding and kind. The calm before the storm is clearly a theme here. What was the process of developing this theme like? Well, the purpose, I think, in me mentioning what everyone's doing is to kind of put to the forefront that this really intense moment is happening and there's so many people around. So for it to be that you feel like there's nothing you can do to stop it. So that's, okay, the fact that um, all these people are in the house and there's not an instance, there's nothing in the story of you hearing me say, I screamed for help. Um, I yelled. I felt trapped, even though that there, you know, there was so many people around me. My mom was in the house. My dad was house. I felt trapped, and I felt that there was no way out. And a lot of people that are in those situations, that's what they feel like. So, for someone that has never experienced it, you will hear them say, "But why don't you just get out?" Right. Or, or yeah. you know, why, why are you still there? There's so many different things that's um, happening to a person. It really messes with you mentally. And this is why, too, in, in addition to that, the whole theme of me talking about the person I was before and the person that I am now is because those experiences change you. They impact you so much where all of a sudden you lose track of the person that you are and you you get warped into this, I don't deserve better, I can't get better, or you know, just completely settling with whatever's happening in that moment or just bottom line, fear. Fear is a huge thing and you can hold it over a person. And this is what for a lot of people that are in situations like that, that is held over their head. That like daunting fear of 
I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This person's going to kill me. And to feel like there's no way out, not to mention as well, at least I think the impression that I give people and then that you can even get from that story is I'm not a timid person and I'm not quiet and I'm not reserved and I'm not the type of person that's going to take shit from anyone. So the fact that I'm taking so much shit from this particular person, that level of embarrassment is huge. It's super huge, you know, for no one. And I experienced it once everything obviously came out in the open eventually. And, you know, I, I did whatever I had to do thereafter. Every person, whether it was a friend or a family member, shocked completely where they're like, Yvette, you, no way. But unless you're in it, and, and maybe too with that, having that theme, it would help other people to kind of understand mm-hmm. why people end up staying in these situations longer than than they, from, they would, right. It came from so much conditioning. Right. Like it doesn't just like happen where suddenly someone, like when you're in a relationship, it's not that, or any kind of like in- instance where this person is someone that you know and you are supposed to respect and you're supposed to like love to an extent it'll never just happen where you just kind of uh, it's what a lot of people don't understand about people that go through this is that it doesn't just come from you just you don't just like let it happen like why would anyone right no things it it builds up and there's other factors too at least for my situation um he was my best friend's brother Mm-hmm. that's one he went to the same high school as me he stopped going like he dropped out but we were all in the same high school yeah, new friends we friends. all have the you know, around the same people and that also ended up like for my senior year being one of the toughest things to deal with that you have strangers people you don't even know walking over to you and saying well i hear you're keeping your daughter away from her father and that's horrible you're a bad mom for that you don't know shit about me or what's going on with me but there's so many other factors at play that makes you feel like how even if i get out of this i'm still having this mm-hmm. in my face yeah it's still it's, yeah. it's not as easy yeah it's not as just easy to just get up and leave right it's it's because hard even worse especially like with another person because he can throw that other person under the bus too right be like it's not just like her it's not just like that he wants to be with you it's like the daughter too so he he can make you seem like you're just an uncaring mother so you won't make it work for her right and it's just so many other factors that just and that's that that right there too when you mentioned that Mm -hmm. so uh she's 13 now yeah he hasn't seen her in 12 years okay um if he were ever truly interested right truly interested in being a father and being a parent to her, you would fight to the ends of the earth exactly. to be around. Mm-hmm. You would be as nice as you could to exactly. you. Well, not yeah. not even that. I mean, not even go down the avenue of even yeah. dealing with me. This is why they have a court system. Mm-hmm. You want to see your kid? Yeah. File for visitation. Mm-hmm. File for custody. No one is stopping you. None of that has ever taken place. Mm-hmm. None of that has ever taken place, and he doesn't support my child either. So... Right. This is right. so. It's like it's a testament to it. So if you wanted to, my point is then, if he ever wanted to use that, right? Like you kept my kid away, mm-hmm. you could have done whatever you wanted to do yeah. or had to mm-hmm. do to be around your child. You decided not to. Not to say, 
that I would allow it. I would fight to the end of the <laughs> yeah. earth to protect my kid. <laughs> Let's oh, be definitely. clear. Twice Let's be clear. Because <laughs> oh mama would not just roll over and say, okay, yeah, no. My <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, forward Once that child was born, this is when I got out the situation. Mm-hmm. When Mimi was a month, a month and a week. Seeing my kid and having her physically in front of me and saying to myself, there is no way I'm going to have this baby mm-hmm. experience this life Mm -hmm. no way and i did whatever i had to do and i take care of my kid and i protected her and thankfully this is not a life that she's experienced and on the subject of mimi yeah what always gets me about the story is reminding myself that there is that other life involved um who was not even like born at the time of the moments that you capture in your story um your daughter like you look at her traumatic conception and the different legacy you wish her name, your name to have. Right. And she's now 13 years old and you don't see her as a product of something horrible. You see her as like the light of your life. Right. And you have this immense love for her. And this episode is about beginnings. This episode of the podcast and their effects on the middle of our stories and ultimately the end of our story. Right. So how has this beginning (laughs) affected your story with your daughter? If at all. Well, um, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I've really sat there and tried to like uh, narrow that down or, or nitpick it. Um, I think maybe experiencing what I did, it made me appreciate. So this is why I point out how healthy she came out, right? Mm-hmm. That was like number one. I'm like, thank God she's okay, right? Mm-hmm. I kept saying, thank God she's okay. Thank God she's okay. And then as she, you know, started to get bigger and from that, you know, baby phase to the toddler phase, um, I've always looked at her as Mimi. It's in, I didn't look at her as Mimi, part of me and part of him. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Mimi's always been just this separate individual that lived in me. She, you know, <laughs> yeah. And she that's just housed her for a little right. Bit. <laughs> and not not that she doesn't. Obviously, there's things like um, she looks a lot like me, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um. But she has, you know, features. And even sometimes when I see her, you know, mannerisms and things like that, that's, you know, from her father's side or maybe just like from her father. And I don't feel any certain way. I know that I've had conversations with people where they're like, oh, it just burns me when I see my kid make that face and they look Mm -hmm. just like their dad. And maybe it's because I've disassociated myself so much from him. He, for me, literally is just that person from the past that, you know, in, in part because of him, she's here, but he holds no weight. Yeah. I, I don't know if that, that makes any yeah. sense. So in terms mm-hmm. of how I interact with Mimi and how we continue to interact. So now she's 13. She's officially the beginning stage of a teenager. Oh, my gosh. Oh gosh. And yeah. it's an interesting thing to see, like, because remember, I had her so young. I still remember what it was like mm-hmm. when I was 13 years old and what I felt and everything that I was experiencing and... Um, it makes me, I think, be a little bit more empathetic to how would I word it when the kid is like, mommy, I just don't want to go out. And she wants to just lock herself in the room and act like the world doesn't exist. You know, when I was a kid and I would attempt to do that, my mom would be like, no, you can do what I say. And that's it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I give her room sometimes. I give her room to be. I guess maybe that's me pointing out the the whole thing of her being an individual mm-hmm. she is mm-hmm. mimi is mimi she's a part of me and, and and you know in essence she's a part of him too but she is mimi mm-hmm. and um i've always since she was small i've always instilled that in her and i hope it continues 
I hope she doesn't lead into going into high school and kind of fall victim to these types of things, yeah. to peer pressure, mm-hmm. to, and if you talk to her now and you talk to her about, you know, boys or girls, because that's another thing too. We even had a conversation about that yes. where I'm like, <laughs> this is how it went, Karen. I told her, I was like, I don't care if, if someone hurts you, whether they're a male or female, they're still getting their ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care who you love or how you love. As long as you're happy, I will still kick someone's ass if they hurt you. Um, but I'm I'm completely open because she w- actually mentioned to me that she she was like, I think I kind of like this girl, but in a you know different way, like how I like have liked guys before. And instead of instead of it being you know where it's like, <gasps> I said okay, well let me let's reflect a little bit and let me be just a little frank with my daughter. And I'm like, I've been attracted to women. It's not like. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. The only thing I pointed out to her was um, things change with time. I said, so you might feel this way now. You might end up feeling different. You might stick to that way. You might listen. Mm-hmm. I said, life just takes you where it takes you. And I just want her to be comfortable in um, the skin that she's in. This is interesting because eventually she will hear this. And she will be like, Jesus, <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> Why'd you say so much? <laughs> exactly. Like, Why are you embarrassing me? <laughs> oh, she's a great kid, though. She really is. Yeah. I think I went like in a circle. No, like I deviated good. a little bit. No, I'm sorry, no, no it's good. It's good. This is solid. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. I think you've already touched on this, but what do you want readers to take away from this? Um, a few things. First, for anyone that's kind of experiencing something similar to this, that they know one, you aren't alone. And um, like it's, you know, mentioned, there's so many different like um, avenues and forums for you to get support, for you to get help. Um, also, too, this is not the end of the road. Even when you feel like it's the end, it's not the end. There's always um, an opportunity for for more progress. Um, I really just want it to be that there's an understanding um, attached as well to the concept of rape. So. For a lot of people, when they think of rape, they have this imagery of, you know, it being so aggressive and, you know, violent. Rape is rape. If someone is saying, I don't want to do this, and you keep pushing them to do it and forcing them to do it, that is rape. And, you know, it it took me a while. It took me a really long time to come to terms with the fact of I was raped and I was raped repeatedly after that. It took me a very long time, and I blamed myself. I kept saying, I allowed this. You allowed this to happen. And in a, in a way, it might seem like I allowed it, but I also had a person just take advantage of the fact that I wasn't being combative, that I wasn't um, attacking him the way that he was attacking me. So, and I had mentioned this in, in conversation, too, with Madrazo, um, it happens a lot more often than people think, especially in relationships. Mm-hmm. Just because you're with someone doesn't mean that you are required to sleep with them whenever they want. You have a right to say no, and if you don't want to do it, you don't do it. Um, so that that for me is also a big deal, I think, in this piece, for people to understand that. And also as well for for people that experience rape in this way and then have children you know, as a prod, like a product of their rape is, is in front of them for them not to feel like it's the worst thing in the world or to have resentment towards their child. Um, I'm sh- I know everyone's not meant to be a mother, um, but having Mimi 
proved to me how much I was meant to be a mom more than anything else in this universe. And if, if someone could just take that from it, you know, maybe reflect back from themselves and say, okay, I went through these hurdles. I went through these tough moments in time, but damn it, I'm a good mom. You know, that would be really good for me, too, to have it be that someone reads that and feels that way. I think I got lipstick on the mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Damn, you are a good mom. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. You're, like, the best person I know. I hope so. I hope um, the baby feels that way, too. Right now, I'm, like, God. I'm literally God to that child. Where it's, like, <laughs> hopefully Please that continues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. What? <laughs> oh my god just thank you for that yeah. because Thanks. it's 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 oh, uh, oh karen i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> but i know that sometimes when you experience this thing it's hard to see yourself thank you Lisa. no problem <laughs> it's I'm hard prepared. to see yourself and hard to see anyone thinking of you as more than the experience right <laughs> and <laughs> i didn't want it to um i didn't have that be my identity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if it was for a bit it, it was a very very tough time for me even after that because i was so i was so dark inside like mm -hmm. why did all these things happen and why am i experiencing this and you know beating myself up to like god you should have left earlier and like all these, you, you put, put all these different scenarios in your head and um, that anger and resentment, it could eat at you. And I did my best to let it go. A lot of writing, actually, back then I used to write a lot too. Um, I didn't want it to be something that, that defined me completely. Mm -hmm. And this is why back then too, I used to do a lot of domestic violence, um, public speaking, and I stopped because I felt overwhelmed seeing my story over and over and over again and for me it was like okay if i'm gonna move on maybe i gotta stop talking about this for a bit and just focus on life right now in that moment and i just i, I focused on mimi and i focused yeah. on myself and yeah. thankfully that that worked and it helped she yeah. helped you through it she she has no idea <laughs> she has no That's idea so just her existing mm -hmm. has been absolute blessing <laughs> yeah i hate you guys they're <laughs> <laughs> all crying but <laughs> it's just because uh, sometimes there is just this immense pressure on sir like people that have gotten through it i hate i hate uh, i hate saying survivors and i hate saying victims and right. i have some of my own reasons for that but there is so much pressure on people that go through this to like become this beacon of healing right. and strength mm -hmm. and that they, it doesn't give them a chance to just be exactly. or heal or even heal itself exactly yeah. even heal you got to take care of you too yeah exactly so thank you for you thank Evie, you the mom the banker the person <laughs> with the great hair the person <laughs> with the banger outfits and the like sly tattoos for yes coming in <laughs> thank you. and talking about just mm -hmm. a part it this is not yeah, your is whole great. life. It mm -hmm. is not everything that defines you. It is a part. Yeah. Yeah. Thank and you so much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. <laughs> no, Thank literally. you for sharing. Mm -hmm. 
Our next piece of the night is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Stacey Vargas. Stacey Vargas is a senior at John Jay College majoring in criminal justice management and minoring in criminology. After encouragement from a former student, Stacey took a creative nonfiction course, which was her first creative writing course ever. She works as a literary tutor at Rikers Island and at Petco. When Stacey's not working, she likes to spend her time with pets and relaxing watching documentaries on Netflix. After graduation, she will pursue a career in corrections. Thanks, Patricia. Let's take a listen to Stacy's piece. It's 7.48 a.m. Parents are gone to work. He should be here in 12 minutes. Floorboards creak as she takes a 17th tour of her house. Her phone sounds. It's Maxine. Is he there yet? The text reads. She responds no as she mentally reviews her experienced friend, How to Be Sexy Guide, for the 47th time. At 16 years old, she can't compare at all to her best friend, Maxine, who even at the age of 14 had more experience than a 20-year-old. Maxine wasn't selfish, though. She was excited for her more innocent friend to become a woman. Everything has to be perfect. Maxine agrees. Skipping school has got her nervous enough, though. How many times has she skipped school before? Nope, never. Add that to the list of firsts for today, too. She recalls sending the email. It's already there. My daughter will be out of school today for she is very sick. She'll return tomorrow. Signed, Lillian Vargas. Her thoughts fly to her parents. They'd kill me if they found out. (sighs) Maxine says a man likes a clean room. Did you make your bed? How does your room look? Her hands move independently to her pelvis, a new softness, and her feet follow unsaid orders. Floorboards creak as she makes her way up the stairs. She counts 12. She's at the top. It's 7.51 a.m. He should be here in nine minutes. The comforter covers the bed and hangs off the sides evenly. Seven pillows are arranged artfully. Shoes are kicked in the closet, socks shoved out of sight. Okay, a clean room. Got it. Ready. But wait, music! What type of music should be playing? What does he like? It's like he's a stranger, not her first boyfriend of now two months. The TV will do fine. That's enough noise, right? She sits on her bed and reaches for the control. Maxine had instructed that she play something sexy. Maybe soft porn she didn't even really know what that was but no awkward right she searched through the channels something interesting enough to have on but not so captivating to take his attention she settles on his favorite channel the food network it's 755 he should be here in five minutes she looks down at her attire and effortless yes sexy look her and maxine created together matching purple bra and a thong his favorite color She pulls up the everlasting wedgie. The thong was Maxine's touch. Why do people wear these things? Her shortest shorts clutch her hips and a tank top shows off her A-cut breast. She pulls on a sweater. It's December for Christ's sake, Maxine. I'll just take it off when he gets here. Floorboards creak as she begins her 18th round, her stomach tightening with every step. Breathe. But she can't. Today is an important day. She's been planning it like this for weeks. It's December 12th, 2012. 12, 12, 12, junior year. Maxine says losing a virginity on a day like this is memorable. Nothing can go wrong. Something special will happen. Breathe. Wait, first period hasn't started yet. She can still back out. Text them a, never mind, my parents came back. I'll see you at lunch and pretend to be unhappy about their first time getting interrupted. There's still time. No. It's 7.57 and her phone lights up. But this time, it's the guest of honor. I'm walking down the block, she reads. She stops. Can she really hear his impending footsteps coming down Elizabeth Avenue? He'll be here in 30 seconds? Her hands fly into an unfamiliar smooth surface, scratching, then to her phone. 
He's coming down the block, she texts Maxine, having to redo every word because her fingers are prone to typos at times like this. Oh, shit. Floorboards creak as she makes her way down the stairs, slower this time. She's on step three when there's suddenly a figure outside her door. Step four, step five. The doorbell rings and sends her heart into double time. Step six, step seven. She can see he's bent over, tying his shoes maybe? At a time like this? He stands up again and puts his hand to his mouth, biting his nails. A nervous habit she detected when she showed up at his chorus concert a month prior. He stood up with his choir on the far left side, trying to hide. Lyrics bumble through the fingers in his mouth. She smiles. Step eight, step nine. The floorboards are creaking. 10, 11, 12. Fuck. She pauses to look in the mirror. Breathe. She opens the door. He's wet. It's raining? He walks in sheepishly smiling. She welcomes him with a kiss, trying to act normal. It feels different, though, so she pulls back. He nervously asks if he should take his shoes off. Surely he can't be feeling the way she does. Why is he acting nervous? She's not the first person he's had sex with, not even the second. She would be the third notch on a belt she was just starting to fasten. They stand together awkwardly for a second or two too long. He's waiting for her to make the gesture to lead him to where they're going in the house. He's like a guest waiting for his tour guide to lead him. Why is this so weird? This is supposed to be perfect. Floorboards creak as they approach step 11. He makes a joke about being glad about having an excuse to not do his math homework. <laughs> they both laugh too loudly. He walks in first and sits. He makes a 16-year-old boy dent in the comforter, she notices. Floorboards creak as she makes her way around the bed to sit next to him, to make an imprint of her own. She's, she sees that he visibly relaxes when he notices the cooking channel playing in front of them. But anxiety still seeps through her pores, and she fears he can sense her fear. Fear she's ruining everything. Stop ruining this! She tells herself. He puts a hand over hers, playing with her fingers, and makes a joke about her timeline of photos on the wall. She laughs and jumps up, trying to hide picture day from the third grade. Yo, you got no teeth! He laughs loudly, trying to take a picture of it for blackmail on his phone. They're play fighting now. What do I do now? Straddle him. With relief, she recalls step two of Maxine's how-to. She's on top of him, a new view for her. Her thighs have never felt the feeling of a body between them. Someone else's body. He kisses her and lingers. Lean into him, lay him down. She recalls step three, but suddenly starts to tremble. Too sexy! She stops and awkwardly laughs, looking anywhere but in his eyes. Um, tell me a funny story, she says, trying to lose her awkwardness and laughter. She hopes that as he talks, she can gather time to think more clearly about Maxine's instructions. He pauses, then says, okay, but you can't tell anyone about this. He proceeds to tell her about a time he was playing video games with his two best friends when suddenly they started to fight, something about one of them cheating. He found himself trying to break it up, and the next thing he knew, one of his friends pushed the other into him. Their lips touched accidentally, he confesses. She laughs. I tell you to tell me a funny story, and you decide to tell me about the time you kissed Aaron? She's laughing loudly. Now she has her own blackmail. I'm telling everyone, she squeals. They play fight again. The trembling is gone now, and determination sets back in. She knew from the day he asked her out that this was the boy she was going to lose her virginity to. It had already been decided. She could do this. She knew she could. He was a sweet boy. After all, he was willing to overlook the glasses and braces and the fact that she always came attached at the hip to her best friend. She wasn't popular, but then again, neither was he. He wasn't going to break her heart, and she was determined not to graduate high school a virgin. That was key. Maxine would not have it. He kisses her again, and she lays him back like the instruction she was given said to. Now she's naked, in front of a boy, another first for the day. Should I get a condom? He whispers in her ear. Uh, 
Her voice too loud breaks the moment. Yeah, get it. She says bluntly and still too loud. Damn it. Surely it was a way to make that sound sexier. Maxine didn't mention that part. Floorboards creak as he gets up and he makes his way over to his bag. She stares at the ceiling. Oh, God. Remember your safe words. Remember your passage, Stacy. See, Maxine says to always have a passage in mind to recite if the mind needs a distraction from what's happening to the body. It's a calming method, she says. Remember the passage. Remember the passage. Start saying the passage. Start saying the... He's smiling at her and tearing open the package. Quickly, he slides it on and is over her again. Um, are you cold? He suddenly asks. Remember the passage. The passage. Calm down. She smiles, assuring him everything is all right, and he gets to work. Negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC over 2A. Negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC over 2A. Negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus... What? He says. In your head, dumbass. The passage is supposed to be said in your head. Don't look weird. Ah. Negative B plus or minus... Oh my god. Ow. What the fuck? Negative B plus or minus... Damn. Ow. Okay, breathe. Breathe. Negative B. Oh my God. Why am I doing this? Is this sex? Is he in? He had. Oh my God. This is horrible. Negative B plus or minus the square root of fuck. A lifetime passes and he gets up. It's 8.42 a.m. and she's grown five years older. She stays on her back and checks the time. We can make it back before second period. Should I apologize? That was difficult. She does as such and he reassures her that there's nothing to say sorry for. He zips up his pants and he smiles at her. It's genuine. He puts out his hand in an attempt to help her off the bed. They dress and they make their way down the steps, floorboards creaking with their fingers interlocking. They march up Elizabeth Avenue with a newfound pride, a weight in her legs she's beaming about. She's already recalling the last 42 minutes in her head so she doesn't forget to report any of it to Maxine. He walks through the front door of Teaneck High School with her in tow behind him. I gotta go, he says with a boyish smile. See you at lunch? Yes, yes you will. She smiles and kisses him goodbye. Then quickly, she darts off to find her best friend. Wow, oh my gosh. Girl, that <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. Me too. Oh gosh. Yeah, especially that. after like uh the story that we just heard, the first one. Um having this is just like a nice just like a refresher and just so it was just so funny and like well done. <laughs> um and yeah, just thank you for being here, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. No thank problem. you for thank being you. here. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank, you. thank you. So your story is told through like the third person perspective. What made you choose that? Like, when you decide and during your writing process that this is what you want to do? So in class, Professor Madrazo once said, you know, it might be easier to write about something you would never want to write about if you tell it from another perspective, like removing yourself. And I was thinking, what was something I would never write about? And I'm like, well, I would never write about a sexual experience. And then I just thought, well, let me write it from a third person. And then I didn't want to do any sexual experience. So the first one's always like, I guess, like not the most memorable, but you know, 
it's what you remember. So I just decided to take that approach and put it towards this time. And you did it really well. (laughs) She's not wrong about the perspective. Yeah, I feel that as myself. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) It it was so funny. It was just, like, really well done. That's how she got me. I was like, I'm not going to write about something I don't want people to know about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just exactly that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Like, I love how you mentioned, like, how in the story that you have, like, a specific passage you recite (laughs) during that whole experience. And, like, how did you decide that was the passage you needed to keep calm? You know, in high school, I was at, like, I'm in band, I'm in advanced math classes, braces, glasses. I was that kind of girl in high school. So it was just, (laughs) I don't know, it was just, you know... I was already in trigonometry that sem- that you know years, so it just it just came in. <laughs> so just just you went to a safe place of trigonometry. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's a the first time trigonometry is safe. Math doesn't excite really? anyone, no. so is trigonometry. You want to calm yourself, I'm, think of something right. boring. So. Oh, that's like the last thing that's gonna yeah. calm you. Exactly. <laughs> so I have a question: Is trigonometry still your safe place? No, it's not even like I don't even enjoy it. Like who does? I don't know. The quadratic formula just stuck in my mind. (laughs) Yeah, and I noticed that you included the time of the day a few times while letting us into your inner dialogue of like what you're doing or what your feelings are, like leaning up to the moments of like this boy's arrival. And it returns one last time near the end when you say (laughs) it's eight forty-two and she's grown five years older. (laughs) So what was it like? going from a girl freaking out while still managing the time to this like bland, brand new like woman well i guess it's just the experience itself you know like prior to it happening of course you know you're nervous that was the first time i'd ever done anything with any guy anybody so it was just like oh my god i'm nervous like mm-hmm. what's gonna happen is this gonna be like the movies is this how maxine said it was gonna be <laughs> so you know I'm very, i was just really nervous and then afterwards just like well i did it yeah. I, you know, I'm grown. I'm <laughs> I can do what? Right. <laughs> so, like, throughout this, uh, you're, like, talking about how, like, Maxine was, like, coaching you through it and everything like that. And, uh, yeah, like, did you ever feel, like, pressure because of her? Or, like, was it something that you just wanted to do and she was, like, this helping force through that? I would say, you know, she was my best friend. So, of course, there was always the hearing what she would do and be like, oh, well, I wonder what that's like. So it wasn't like I had to do it. You know, she had done so much and I'd done so little. We were still friends. So it wasn't like, you know, she's forcing me. She's not going to be approved, you know, approve of me if I don't do it. But I just wanted to do it. You know, it's like a rite of passage, apparently, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, I'm dating this guy. He's my first boyfriend. So it's going to happen. Maxine, help me out. (laughs) Like, you know, like, and Maxine was just as excited as I was to help, you know, to help me out. (laughs) That's so nice. That's so, that, yeah, just just like have someone to like confide in and be like, no, listen, this is the formula. Right, <laughs> this is what you do. It's like a cocktail. Of, like, down to the last detail. Like, make sure right. it's the purple song. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would love to know where she got all this from. You know, right. she was too grown. Yeah, like what? So um, my last question for you is, um, what would you want your readers or your listeners to take away from this piece? Um... I would guess, I guess I would say, you know, it's always just relaxing is to kind of make fun of yourself sometimes and just to make light of a situation. And, you know, there's sometimes that we take ourselves too seriously. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, reading this, you know, I, 
I guess if I had told it from another perspective, it might not have been as funny. You know, everyone's nervous their first time, but you know, just to write it this way just makes people laugh about it. So it's not such a daunting, oh my God, she had sex mm-hmm. type of story. Yeah. I feel you. It's just like, oh my goodness, watch this kind of awkward person just like <laughs> get through this. And like, it, it was just very, like, it was just like, there's just like so much innocence to it. Like, it's just like <laughs> sweet. And I'm just like, we all kind of find it relatable, even if we had the best for time where nothing was awkward and everything was like mm-hmm. in the movies, <laughs> which, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Rose petals like, on the bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everything is fireworks. We, we don't know how they get fireworks. We don't know. <laughs> But yeah, everyone can find it like relatable and like, you know, have like just like a giggle. <laughs> Which and, yeah. And there's also cool. something really powerful about the way everything's on her terms. Yeah. Her house, her time, mm-hmm. her date. Yeah. Her right. You yeah. know, I really I really like that. Part. Yeah. Which is that like very really you. <laughs> Not that I know you like super well, but like what I do know about you is like you're very like sex positive. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely have that whole independent woman with a Y feminist thing going on. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Stacey. Thank you. This has been thank awesome. You. Like, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank, <laughs> thank you, yeah, you really. for listening. Wow. It's a good story. I really enjoyed it. Our last story is by Nina, a returning author to the podcast. Nina is a 22-year-old student at John Jay who is currently dealing with a dual major in English and criminology, as well as a minor in writing. They started writing at a very young age and had left it later on in life in order to pursue visual art. They didn't start writing again until freshman year of college, although they're rusty. With enough elbow grease, they could make it work. When they aren't typing their fingers into stubs or instinctively eating their pens, they're likely trying to garner the favor of cats, smooching guys or gals, or obsessing over something. This obsession cycle consists of Jojo's bizarre adventure and the inevitable death. Good grief. Let's take a listen to Nina's piece entitled The Royal and the Peasant. My father called her earlier in the week. He wanted to know if she could come up with some rent money for this month. Again just like she had every month since the divorce. Of course, she said yes, but the deep frown lines along her cheeks and the disappointment in her brown eyes, they said otherwise. For the record, my mother is almost 60 years old and looks to be in her early 40s, except when he calls. She always looks her age every time he calls. She slouched onto her desk chair when I asked why she keeps doing this. She simply rolled her eyes and, in Cantonese, retorted, I already told you, now that he's had a stroke, he's basically useless without me. The corner of her lips turned into a smirk as she danced around the word stroke, and she shook her head. I think it's his punishment for drinking all the time. But was it really punishment if nothing much has changed for him? She fell silent for a moment and looked away. He's too damn lucky for his own good, I'll say that much. It's about time something knocked him down a few pegs. Not that he didn't deserve it, his luck I met. He used to be such a nice person. Her smirk softened into a warm smile. You should know, she said to me. Your mother isn't stupid enough to marry someone who treated her like garbage. Yeah. But then she pinched the bridge of her nose and closed her eyes. The dark bags underneath only darkened in response. No, your mother was stupid enough to marry someone poor, someone arrogant, and who then treated her like garbage. But it wasn't always like that. They met when they were nine years old. Classmates. 
way before they'd end up across the world in Brooklyn. They used to both go to a small building near the border of Guangdong, China, for their education, and even the same place for their high school education afterwards. The building wasn't in the best of shapes, she recalled. There was no paint on the outside, nor the inside for that matter, and the floor was just dirt in the beginning. It was fine for the students who had shoes, like her. But the majority of them didn't have them and would get dirt all over the desks or even the doors. The only room that had any sort of flooring was the kitchen, and that was it. And the bathrooms? Forget about the bathrooms! That was what the outhouses were for, which were all a good 30 feet to the west from the building, and they were only cleaned weekly at best. It was technically a boarding school for her, as both of her parents, my grandparents, were government officials who really couldn't take care of their three children. So they just sent her off to a completely different part of the country while they conducted their business up north, near Beijing. She and her siblings had to learn a completely new dialect in order to survive even the first week. They couldn't get more food unless they knew how to ask and charm the older aunties who worked in the kitchens, after all. But whenever they were allowed to go home, they were always lavished with toys, books, and any other things that their parents could afford with their relatively high salaries, with bonus points for Grandpa being a high-ranking veteran for both world wars. They even kept a few cats and a dog in their home, she told me once, and an older maid with a crooked nose whom she had dubbed Beijie. The term for sister nose, much to the woman's dismay. It was a cushy life, and if she wanted to keep it that way, and she did, she would have to marry herself off to someone rich, preferably an affluent city dweller in Hong Kong, Chinese or British, it honestly didn't matter, or a wealthy white foreigner who could take her back to his beloved America as a trophy wife. It was only logical. As for my father, he was just a local farm boy. His family worked large tracts of land, but they didn't own a single centimeter of it. They didn't even get to own their own house. It all belonged to the government, and admittedly, they had done a poor job keeping it functional. Sometimes he could be seen out in the middle of the night trying to pump water out from the well for tomorrow, but would get nothing even after an hour of trying. He was also the reason why said well had a dent in it, but that was only because he dared my mother to throw a loose brick at it. Basically, he was as poor as they come, my mom continued, looking up from the bills that she had counted in her hands before wrapping them with the thick rubber band. Pitiful, even as my own mother would say. His family would have had to work day in and day out for literal pennies, and they could only keep a small handful of the things that they've grown for themselves. The only thing that the old bag appreciated was that everything else they grew would go to the rest of the country, if it lasted long enough. Back when I was a kid, she said, I would sometimes be paid for doing those errands around the neighborhood, and that includes picking his family's and neighbors' vegetables, and then hauling them halfway across town, all while carrying over 120 turnips from across seven plantations. All of them were about the size of swollen baby heads. She chuckled while she clawed and grabbed at the air with both of her hands, as if to show me an approximation of what a swollen baby head was sized at. You have no idea what kind of person your mother was. I was the class president, and I used to be the absolute best turnip hauler, at least third best, in the entire city. At least! I was unstoppable. And apparently, it was enough to catch the eye of my father, who had, allegedly, been head over heels for her for years. He did everything he could to get my attention, she said. He would steal these huge puffy peonies from the market and then put them on my desk. He would try and talk to me while I worked, and... Hell, he even beat up the kid who took out my chair from underneath me. She tapped on her desk with the bills. Now, of course, I beat the little shit up first myself and with the same chair. But that's besides the point. But one day, her class was let out into the nearest park, which was still under construction. At that point in its development, it was nothing more than some public fruit trees, wild berry bushes, and a high chain-linked fence with barbed wire looping at the top. But somehow their teacher believed that it was a good idea to let them out and learn how to forage for food in the wild. They were all given a basket each, but due to a shortage, she had to share hers with him. 
He just patted himself on his chest and said that he'll do everything and I just sit back and be impressed. She shrugged. I basically said, screw that, and began looking for the furthest tree that I could find from the group. That was my first mistake. The tree that she had chosen was among the tallest ones in the park. Mom, who at the time was probably about 11 years old, could barely see the top of the leafy canopies that hung overhead, and the sound of buzzing mosquitoes only intensified. Her abnormally hairless skin pricked up as the wingbeats fluttered against her arms, and she refrained from swatting at them, and only proceeded to climb up the tree. The pointy, jutting bark dug into her arms, and the bark on one side of the tree was already half-rotted and falling apart. But she didn't care. She resorted to using her nails and a pencil to make her way up. Probably three of her fingernails had popped off of her nail beds at the quarter point, and the blood from her throbbing fingers was now smeared all over the tree. But it didn't even matter. That giant grapefruit at the top, the very top of that tree, she had said, was the prize. Mom pointed up. That was all that mattered. Meanwhile, my father was catching his breath at the bottom and calling her name and telling her to come down. I just told him that I found this a real winner and kept going up. For some reason, his voice was sounding a lot more nervous than usual. I was near the halfway point, she continued, when I realized that the buzzing mosquitoes were getting louder and louder. I assumed that they were just following me and maybe one went into my ear, but then I looked up again. My second mistake was thinking that a hornet's nest was a giant fruit. I only realized this when I saw this thumb-sized bee creature flying at me. Her fingers curled back as if wincing from the thought. I jumped down from that height and I twisted both of my ankles, but we both started to run. She sighed. I was a bit too slow, though, and I got stung twice, at the back of my head. She pointed to the nape of her neck, right about here. The pain was like nothing I've ever felt before. It was dull at first, so I was able to get away, but then it exploded. She pulled out one of her cheeks. I lost feeling around here, everywhere really, and I got really dizzy. I was nowhere near the rest of my classmates, and I don't know if I said anything or called for anyone, but I still fell over, and then... I blacked out. But somehow, when I woke up, I wasn't eating dirt. Instead, I was somehow on my back. I could hardly see anything because everything was so bright, but I felt something warm to my left. It took a while, but then I would realize that I somehow ended up at the hospital, all the way in the next town over. My mother looked down at the wad of bills in her hands. She offered it to me to check, but promptly pocketed it when I shook my head no. How did I end up all the way out here? My mother wondered but there was really only one person next to her that day. That someone, she said, who tried to make me eat when I was basically drooling from the side of my mouth, at least until he gave up on the third day. At that point, he just gave me a fresh turnip. She curled her fingers back into claws. Two guesses as to who it was, but before I could speak, she only smiled and patted me on the shoulder. We got to get going before nightfall. My mother and I are standing out at the outermost corner of 58th Street. The bright blue tarp, held up together by bundles of metal rods, snap above us when a gust of autumn wind ripples by. The sound only makes the men behind the styrofoam stalls at the fish market call out even harder for attention. All of them cry out, in a twangy, almost slurred Cantonese-like dialect, Fresh fish! Really fresh fish! Cheap fish! In Sunset Park 8th Avenue, two blocks amidst the constant stream of faces that, more often than not, ignore them outright. The evening crowd has not arrived yet but the constant bumping and weaving to avoid the people only make me creep towards the muddy sidewalk edges as we wait. Another gush of ice and water makes its way down to the block when a man tips over a styrofoam box. It carries with it the stench of fish rot and whatever little blood that remained from the butcher's board. My mother isn't smiling anymore, and is, instead, constantly peering down at her phone 
and running her hands through her thinning black hair after each gust of wind blows by, knuckles glowing white from the chill. She isn't wearing much either, just a baggy houndstooth sweater and a pair of stretchy pants threatening to fall off her narrow hips. They did a good job of hiding the wad of $20 bills in her pocket, 23 in all, and that was all that mattered. It would take another 50 minutes of standing before he'd finally arrive for her money. His hair is now a powdery gray with very few spots of black left, and he parts it in a way that best hides his receding hairline. His skin looks dry and rough like a raw potato, and with line upon line of wrinkles etched around his eyes and cheeks. The left corner of his mouth now droops from the stroke, but today it almost looked like it's realigned with the rest of his face. Almost. He slurs his greeting to me before nudging us towards the nearest restaurant, one with a thin white awning overhead and a smarmy-looking cartoon chef peering down at us from overhead. My mother keeps her gaze down and is the first to step past the glass doors. I tried to imagine them young together before he left. I tried to imagine them foraging for food, running from bees, holding hands in the hospital, deciding to marry even though grandma forbade it, move to America themselves where things would be hard. And I can see it, sort of. When my father left our house for the last time, I was 10 years old. It was quick and it was sudden, but when the door slammed behind his heels that last time, one look at my mother was all I needed to know that it was all over. She didn't weep that day, nor any of the days after. But the way her shoulders fell from their upright, proud posture, the very same posture she'd learned to keep as the daughter of proud government officials, that was what told me that she was all but breaking. Oh my God, that was such an amazing Whoa. story. That's beautiful. Thank I you. want Blown more. Away. <laughs> yeah. I want yeah. more. It's like a, it's like a very like, it's like a cliffhanger, but it's not like jumping off the edge. It's like, oh my God, I'm falling. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told it's Cut a specialty it. of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, Nina. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, I noticed throughout your piece that there are certain parts where you're summarizing or telling us that your mother told you, and then other parts where you hear the dialogue of your mother telling you the story. And we, as an audience or listeners, get to hear it as though she's telling us. Um, so I'm wondering, how did you choose which parts were going to be her speaking and which parts you would be telling? <laughs> well, obviously, the parts that were going to be her speaking were the parts that were, you know, easily translatable, you know. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, it had to be translatable. And it and in order to be translatable, I have to make sure that I don't have to go through any sort of Wolseyism as in. Uh, OK, so in, for example, in, in Chinese, you tend to use a lot of metaphors that when translated into English would get very, very lost or confused. Mm -hmm. So that's what kind of happened uh, throughout some of the uh, story times that she had, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, impressed on, you know, upon me. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ones that, you know, could easily be translated, as I've said before, are the ones that, you know, made it in as dialogue. Mm -hmm. Everything else, what I kind of had to leave up to, like, imagery, had to leave up to just parts of the story itself, mm -hmm. had to leave it up to the narrator, me speaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's really about it uh, as to uh, how I decided which one, you know, gets to go in. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just like I understand with all the Chinese proverbs and everything like that. Since my ground, like I'm half Chinese myself, so mm. I understand awesome. that that craziness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I can if I can remember one right now, I would share with the podcast. But let's just hope that I can actually remember one by the time this is over. <laughs> so I can at least. Give an example, I guess, of some sort. 
Yeah. But yeah, they can get pretty crazy. Yeah. It's kind of cool when you decide to take like the artistic license um, <laughs> to kind of, you know, do that summary. And yeah. when another person's words, even if it if it'll um, like sound different or maybe the reader won't like necessarily mm-hmm. um, he- hear it the best. Um, when to kind of say that okay their words are best described to this and then other parts where it's like okay I can kind of make this at the end of the day you are writing the story so it becomes yeah. your story in a way oh, yeah. so that's cool yeah it was yeah, really like uh, really beautifully done the way you chose which parts and uh, I'm just wondering is it like difficult to like translate from what she tells you in Chinese and then write it out in English Uh you know, uh, metaphors aside, it wasn't really that hard since I have been speaking Cantonese since I was, you know, very, very little. Um, in fact, the reason why I can speak Cantonese was because she decided that Mandarin would be a lot easier to learn down the road. And thus, Cantonese was, you know, th- the one that she would teach me uh, herself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of how it all went. And after years and years of having to listen to it and, you know, do a little bit of translating myself, <laughs> um, I, you know, it just, it just comes kind of naturally. Even though I still can barely read and write it. <laughs> what can you do? So my next question for you is, um, in the beginning of your story, you and your mother are discussing your father. And she says, he used to be such a nice person. And you should know your mother isn't stupid enough to marry someone who treated her like garbage. And then you go on a little further and she says, no, your mother was stupid enough to marry someone poor, someone arrogant, and who then treated her like garbage. Um and then she says, but it wasn't always like that. So has your father always been consistent with you? Um, when did your father change and when did you notice this change? I'll be perfectly honest. I don't remember a single time in my life that where my father has been, I guess, you know, con- you know, considered like, you know, very princely, I guess. He, well, uh, keep in mind, my parents had me uh, pretty late. Uh, my mother was about 38 when she uh, finally got pregnant with me. So... I don't know anything about their lives before um, I was, you know, even able to like, you know, even be able to remember anything. And they do say that children don't start remembering until they're after two years old or, or three, either or yeah, around there. So, um, so I don't know. Um, maybe she, she, she definitely does have like a lot of, you know, good memories about him. And that's why she stuck with him so, for so long, as with a lot of other relationships out there. Especially when it's like time, especially even when both parties know that's time to go. Yeah. They still stick by because of the memories that, you know, that they had. Mm -hmm. So I don't doubt her when she says that, you know, he was a nice guy. Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that one bit. And sometimes I worry for myself whether or not the same thing is going to happen. But for, but as for what I remember, that is not something I remember. As for how he treats me nowadays, I guess I'm, you know, it's amicable, I guess. He doesn't bother me, so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask if he treats you any differently than he does your mother. Uh, nowadays, kind of hard to say. We don't exactly converse for long periods of time. And if anything, I do try to actively avoid him. So, I don't know. I just kind of leave that up in the air. Honestly, though, like, I, like I've said before, the less I see of him, the better. So, yeah. So, what would you like readers to take away from this? I don't know if you've already hit on that yet or... Uh, I don't believe I have, but what I... Yeah, I guess the... 
I guess if the, you know the the message, the main message, if there was you know any sort of message to take away, mm-hmm. would be that fairy tales simply aren't real. Like the whole thing kind of started off as something that's akin to a fairy tale. Oh, the you know the, you know the poor uh, farm boy falls in love with the princess, or uh, you know, and yeah, he has to you know win her heart in order to get his happily ever after that kind of deal. And she falls in love with um you know you know, with the farm boy instead of the uh, person that she's supposed to marry, uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, they get together, they get a happily ever after. What happens after happily, a- you know, happily ever after, you know? Yeah. yeah, I feel like it takes so much effort and time <laughs> and patience to maintain happily ever after. Mm. Like, um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like oh, we've yeah. all kind of gone through oh, that. God. Maybe not in a relationship sense, but... um, Even in, friendship. Yeah, friendships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even with mm. parents sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, totally. Even yeah. the things that Disney doesn't tell us. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of things that Disney doesn't tell us, but hey. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, yeah. God. I feel you. Yeah, but I mean, I myself even found it a little fascinating because of, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe my mom might have like added, you know, a little flair of her own. Maybe Yeah, you know, she was a bit of a storyteller herself. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case was, it was what it was, you know? And... In the end, well, I saw the aftermath of what happened. So, yeah, I'll just tell you that, uh, you know, happily ever after, you can strive for it, but don't expect it, Mm. I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nina, thank you. Thank you you for sharing the story with us about your parents and about you in a lot of ways, too. (laughs) Me, a a lot about me, you say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How so? I don't know. It's just like, a, a person's like origins and how they come about and how like this beginning of your parents like coming together and like you reflecting upon that i don't know i feel like it it helps I, do you feel at all that it helps you in some ways like to to cope to kind of no to kind of like stray maybe or has it taught you any lessons so that maybe when you get into something maybe as serious as them like you start that beginning <laughs> like will that be any different i'll tell you this um it's been okay uh the event uh, depicted in the story it, it has been uh, a pretty long time since that has happened uh, I, uh if you would say like you know about you know, a year would be a long time i guess ish yeah yeah <laughs> And uh, well, even even now, my mom still continues to give me like advice as to what I should do or what I shouldn't do in a relationship. Uh, one, yeah. <laughs> uh, the biggest one that she keeps harping on is never spoil your significant other because they will take you for granted. That's something like that. Something like that. Yeah, like just learning in here. Right? <laughs> learning lessons. Life lessons. Truth. Yeah. I don't doubt her. I mean, that whole thing at the beginning, like <laughs> the rent again, right? again. Right. right. It's yeah. been going on. What can I say? Yeah. What? Ca- My mom's here to give you like healthy ad- uh, relationship advice. What can I say? <laughs> or try to. Thank awesome. You. Yeah. I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. She's helping. Sure, I could use you. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Not every relationship is going to end up like that. Of course. You know. Yeah. So just the really bad ones. on that note nina thank you very much for coming no problem thank you for having me thanks <laughs> come back again please yeah. do yeah it's your second time on here come well i mean <laughs> if things go as planned perhaps i will <laughs> who knows that concludes our first episode of the season a genesis we are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months 
amplifying these young voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy bringing them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good, good night! night.